1 Corinthians 15. We're going to jump right into reading verse 54. Pray, and then uh, I'll say some things that are going to help us orient to what we're doing this morning in God's Word. So, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 to 57. Scripture reads, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Well, Father, we read here on the pages of your word that there is coming a time when death will be destroyed. That the perishable will put on imperishable. And so we pray this morning that with each and every one of our hearts, whether we know you or don't, whether we know you and we are slumbering in our walk with you, whether whatever state we're in, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, would you take your word and would you change and transform our hearts, bringing some from death to life and for all of us to be invigorated by the gospel truth that you're going to reveal to us this morning. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. When you think about the afterlife, I wonder what you think about. So if you have someone who's close to you and they were to ask you, about uh, what happens when we die or after we die, how would you answer that, that question? I suppose what you, I wonder what you picture in your mind and what might those, that picture, what you try to put in words and explain to them. And if your friend asks, well, how, how do we get to whatever it is that you've explained, how you'd explain to get there? You see, it's questions like these about life after life, about what is in store biblically for us is questions like these that have driven our last four sermons together. So we as a church family have been traveling through the Gospel of John, the series called Following Jesus Together, and we've landed in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, we spent two weeks there looking at the amazing words in verse 25 when Jesus utters the astounding truth, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so since then, we've been burrowing into this text to understand what that means when Jesus explains this cosmic reality of his identity. He, he is the resurrection. What does that mean? He is the life. What does that mean? And there is no other. There's no other options. His claim here is the exclusive line in the sand. He himself and himself alone, Jesus Christ, is the resurrection and the life. So if you want resurrection and you want life, then Jesus is the only source of those. So we spent those two weeks looking at the details regarding that truth. But then last time together, we... we um, 
took a deep dive and went to other places of Scripture because the question was, as I asked earlier, then what are the implications of the resurrection and the life? And so we spent la time last time looking at the Bible's teaching about the end, or rather the end of this time and the eternal time to follow, this age and the next age, where we learned about the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven when earth then becomes heaven. So we spent a lot of time looking at that. And this week, we have a specific focus in this part final four of this time is talking about our resurrection bodies. What does the Bible teach when we die? Why do we die? What happens when we die? And then the Bible teaches this thing called resurrection. What happens when we raise? And that's our, our focus this morning. Now, surprisingly, there's only a handful of places in all the Bible that picks up this topic and talks about it. One of them, the largest sustained conversation on this is 1 Corinthians 15. That's why we turn there, and that's where we're going to be today. When we go through this passage, there are a ton of things to look at. We can't look at them all. We have a, we have a specific purpose. What can we learn about our promised resurrected bodies? So that's the aim this morning. Specific question, what can we learn about our promised resurrected bodies? And from there, how we should think and respond. So if you're taking notes, the sermon outline comes to us in four parts this morning. Here they are. Number one, we are first going to turn to verse 12 through 20. And we're going to see that Jesus' resurrection is the assurance of our resurrection. That's the point number one. Then point number two, Jesus' resurrection is the security of our resurrection. That's point two, that's verses 21 to 26. Then point three, the longest point of the message, is Jesus' resurrection is the prototype of our resurrection. And if you notice, that's verses 35 all the way down to 53. Very large passage of scripture. And then we will briefly close our time with our final point. Jesus' resurrection is the victory of our resurrection. And that's verses 54 to 56. That's where we're going this morning. Look with me at verse 12, point number one. Jesus' resurrection is the assurance of our resurrection. Look at verse 12. I'll read down to verse 20. Now, the Apostle Paul writes, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. That we're even found, verse 15, to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So here in this first point, Jesus' resurrection is the assurance of our resurrection. Uh, we can see that here at this church in Corinth, these brothers and sisters in Christ, they had a, they had a confused understanding of so what's resurrection, and, 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 and they had these questions, and so Paul is responding in this very long chapter to explain to them how we're to understand about resurrection. And so here in these first verses, we see that our future resurrection is inseparable from Jesus' resurrection. So you can't think about what God's going to do for us in the future without first thinking about what God has already done in the Son of God when Jesus got up from the grave after being three days dead. So death and resurrection, the promise of our resurrection, can only be possible because Jesus was raised. And his argument here is that if Jesus was not raised, the gospel is not the gospel. We are still in our sins. And Christians, of all people who have ever lived, are the most to be pitied because we've believed in myths, fables, and fairy tales. But, in fact, Christ is raised. Now, pause. We have to define some terms. Okay, I'm throwing some terms around. I'm throwing around terms like death and resurrection. And if you're new here or visiting this morning... These are terms that may not be familiar to you, or they might be familiar, but they don't mean what you think they think they mean. What do I mean? Thank you for asking. Let's define terms. What does the Bible mean when it speaks of resurrection? Because it says that Jesus resurrected, and it speaks that we will be resurrected. Okay, to speak of resurrection, though, you've got to talk about death. What is death? Many people think death is simply cessation. I'm going to be snuffed out, no longer exist, and enter the great void of non-existence. That's not what death is in the Bible. In the Bible, death is not cessation, it's separation. It's separation. So I'm going to talk about physical death and spiritual death. Physical death is the separation of your physical self from your uh, immaterial self, material and immaterial, your body and soul. So to be a human in the Bible is the union of material and immaterial, right? So you think about the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. Adam did not come alive until God formed his body and then breathed the breath of life or the spirit of life into Adam. Then Adam became a living being. So human personhood is not only physical, as scientific materialists and naturalists would teach. It's not only physical, neither is it only spiritual. Those who ascribe to Platonic philosophy or Gnosticism, that anything material is bad and spirit is good, also false. What we see in the Bible, the Bible's true story of the world, is that to be human is to be physical and spiritual combined. Then we live. So then physical death again, 
is the physical body separated from solar spirit. The body goes into the ground. The body decomposes. Now, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus' resurrection, when a person dies, their spirit goes to one of two intermediate states. When a person dies, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus' resurrection, their spirit goes to one of two places, both of which are intermediate, temporary states. Those who have trusted in Jesus for their salvation because of Jesus' perfect life lived in their place, Jesus' death on the cross as their substitute for their sins, and Jesus' resurrection from the grave, while this person renounces sin, those who believe the gospel are saved. Saved from hell, saved from God's wrath, and instead we are welcomed into the eternal joy of the Lord. Those who refuse the gospel. Those who reject God on God's terms. Those who reject the Trinity. Those, those who don't believe and trust themselves to Jesus, don't bow the knee to Jesus. John 3.18 says... You are condemned already unless you repent. They're condemned, and so when their body and soul are separated, the, the unbeliever's body goes into the grave and decomposes, and their soul, Scripture portrays, goes down to a place called Gehenna, or hell. The believer, their body goes into the grave, and their spirit goes immediately to the presence of Christ. So to be eternally separated from the Trinity is spiritual death. Physical death, separation of body and soul. Spiritual death is the eternal separation of um, uh, one's self from the presence of God himself. And for those who refuse to believe the gospel and repent they go to the place of punishment because they're condemned already. So then what is resurrection? If that's death, the separation, then resurrection is the reunion of the physical and spiritual self. Resurrection is the reunion of your material self with your immaterial self to be a whole person again, so to speak, body and soul. And so the Bible teaches there's a resurrection on the last day. And those who um, refuse to believe the gospel, they're resurrected, so they come out of hell, get physical bodies. And both Matthew 25 and Revelation 20 say then they'll be judged for refusing God, denying God, denouncing God, refusing Jesus. And then those people in their bodies will be cast into the lake of fire, which Revelation 2014 calls the second death. Whereas believers, we are given resurrected bodies and we are ushered into, and this is what we looked at last time for so long, the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem. So resurrection is reunion, death is separation, and when I said intermediate state, hell is an intermediate state Resurrection for the unbeliever, then into the lake of fire. Heaven, as we think of the disembodied experience, is a temporary state. Resurrection, 
new physical heavens and new physical earth, new physical Jerusalem, and both of which are eternal. So now back to 1 Corinthians 15 and these questions to Paul in this first point, Jesus' resurrection is the assurance of our resurrection. Paul's argument as he begins this long chapter is that Jesus is raised from the grave. And so true is that truth that the resurrection of Jesus is our hope for future resurrection. So that, that's what he says in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, meaning that he's not raised, then we're to be the most of pitied of all people to ever walk the face of the earth. In other words, there is no hope because Jesus was a liar and it was all wrong. But verse 20 says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So that means for the believer that our hope is bound up in Jesus, who's the first fruits, the first produce produced on the tree. Taste it. That's what it's going to be like. His resurrection is the first resurrection and ours will be like his. We'll look at that later. But if we peek down at verse 58, listen to what this, this says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, here's Paul's conclusion after this long chapter about our resurrection bodies. Here's the conclusion, and I'm telling you it up front. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, we discover that the hope of our resurrection, because of Jesus' resurrection, motivates and shapes your life here and now. Here and now. Knowing that our labors for Jesus in building the church are not in vain. So why do I point this out in the beginning? If, if your takeaway when you walk out the doors this morning, if your takeaway from the message is to get a lawn chair and some sweet tea and just sit on your front porch and wait to die so that you can go be with Jesus, that's missing the point. The point of the passage is all the glories we're about to look at about what's assuredly yours for the future is meant to motivate a type of life lived now for Jesus that is hard and unrelenting work to make disciples of all nations and build the church. So, so you need to keep that biblical truth in your pocket so that as we're thinking about these things, about the future and what's to come, you can't forget about now because what's to come motivates the now. Maybe you've heard this phrase, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. That's false. That's a false statement because of what we're hearing here. The only way we can be any earthly good is to be so heavenly minded because it's our hope, the assurance of our salvation. And so Jesus' resurrection, we discover in this passage, is not only the prototype of what will be, more on that later, but what we discover is that the entire Christian faith, your entire salvation, your eternal future rests on the fact that Jesus is raised from the grave. If Jesus did not raise, it's all a fairy tale. It's all false. We should burn the book and go do something else. That's Paul's argument. That's how significant this is. But you know what? Jesus got up. Jesus rose from the grave. 
Jesus got up, he got out of that grave, he dust off death, folded off his grave cloths, and walked into glory, conquering death. And so what we see in this first point, as we look at death and resurrection, is that because Jesus rose, based on eyewitnesses earlier in this chapter, which we don't have time to read, eyewitness accounts, many accounts, they can take the stand and uh, make that argument before the judge that we have seen and touched Christ's resurrected body. We've seen him, we've dined with him, we know that he has risen. You have an unshakable hope that because Jesus has risen, you will rise again. And that is a non-negotiable, unalterable, amazing and glorious truth. So Jesus' resurrection is the assurance of your resurrection. That's Paul's argument in this first part. Now, point number two, then, Jesus' resurrection is also the security of our resurrection. What does that mean? Let's take a look. Look at verse 21. So Paul continues, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he, Jesus, has put all his enemies under his feet. Now look at, look at the beginning of verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay. So we talked about resurrection and death in the first point, but we didn't ask, address the question, why death in the first place? We know that from Genesis 1 and 2, death did not exist before the fall, before human rebellion. So death is not native, so to speak, to God's very good creation. It's when Adam and Eve plunged the human race into sin that God's appropriate penalty for sin, for rebellion, for hostility, even indifference, is eternal death. Not just physical death, but eternal spiritual death, as we talked about in the previous point. When Adam sinned, our first father, not only did we all sin in him, we sinned with him, and we also inherited a sin nature, and we continue to sin of our own accord. We are sinners by nature, practice, choice, and God's declaration because of Adam's fall. So it's not all his fault. It's your fault and my fault too. And that's what scripture teaches. Because we perpetuate, and had we been there with him, we would have done the same thing. So part of Paul's argument here in verses 21 to 25, he's, he's going to make this whole chapter is a ton of contrasts. He's going to talk about first Adam, last Adam. He's going to talk about the first man and the last man. Tons of contrasts. Part of the argument of this section is that we need a new head of the human race. Because the first one, Adam, 
plunged us into mischief, mayhem, destruction, and ruin. So we need a new Adam to come to right all the wrongs of the first Adam. In fact, the last Adam needs to be superior because he has to be able to undo all that the first Adam did. We all die because of Adam, the first one, but we all can live eternally because of the last Adam, Jesus. Point of clarification. Look in your Bible, look at verse 22. So Paul says, For as in Adam all die, the first one, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If you stopped there and took this verse out of context, you would think that it teaches the heresy of universalism, that all people will eventually be saved. It doesn't. It sounds like it does because, well, the entire human race uh, fell in Adam. So is this teaching that the entire human race will be uh, made alive in Jesus? Verse 23 clarifies for us. He says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, and here's the all. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So there's two groups. All of humanity in the first Adam, and all of those and only those in Christ when he returns. It's important to see. That also begs a question. Are you in Christ? So, so if you're here considering Jesus, maybe a friend brought you, what, however it is that you've come here and you're not yet a Christian, you have not yet dedicated and devoted your life to Jesus Christ, friend, what you're hearing is both the worst news in the entire world and the best news in the entire world. The worst news is there is a lake of fire, literal, physical, eternal, conscious judgment from God. And God, in himself, took on flesh in the person of his son to rescue from his own judgment so that you could have eternal life and eternal glory and eternal bliss with the eternal God. He has come to rescue. And so what I want you to see then is who is the head of you, to use the biblical language. Are you in the first Adam, or have you devote, have you renounced sin and believed in Jesus, his death and resurrection for you to be in Jesus? Nothing that you do to fix yourself, no work that you can do, because you're dead in your sins. But Jesus is alive. And Jesus alone is the one who can bring death out of, or bring life out of death. And so Jesus then, when you bow the knee to him, saves you. And he turns away no one who comes to him. So if you don't know Christ, friend, know Christ. Not on your terms, on his terms. He's the king, you're not. Bow in allegiance to a gloriously good God. You see, Jesus, what we're learning here, is not just the new Adam. Jesus is the better Adam, and Jesus is the final head of the human race. We won't need another one. We won't need another rescue. There is a rescuer, and his name is Jesus. In fact, in fact, this is what's so amazing in this part. Jesus is so infinitely superior, right? It's not two equal Adams, as it were. Jesus is so infinitely superior to the first Adam that whereas the first Adam caused your death and my death, look at what Jesus does. 
Look at verse, the beginning of verse 26 in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 25 says Jesus must reign until Jesus has put all of his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do you hear who destroys death? Jesus does. Jesus is the conqueror of death. Death itself will be killed by Christ. And the Bible talks about this in Revelation 20. The last book of the Bible, the, the, it speaks of the, the resurrection of the unbelieving dead happens. There's a great white throne judgment. The judgment takes place. Saints enter glory. And it says that then death and hell and the devil are cast into what's called the lake of fire and all of those not written in the Lamb's book of life. And the Bible calls this the second death. You see, so that moment, there's a moment coming where Jesus is so cosmically powerful that he is going to kill death himself. And so if Jesus kills death, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, what's the implication for you in your resurrection? If death is dead, then you can never die again because there is no more death. When we are raised in Christ, we will never be able to die because death will no longer exist because it's in the lake of fire. Death will be impossible. So what does that mean for you, dear Christian, to get a resurrection body? It means that you will never, ever, ever suffer again. You will never die again. Because Jesus has conquered and freed you from death forever. You need not fear death because death will be dead because of Christ. That's how powerful Jesus is. Gentle, meek, and mild. He is the death killer. And that's what he has done when he rose from the grave. This is who we've gathered to worship this morning. So Jesus' resurrection is not only the assurance that you will be raised, but on the second point, Jesus' resurrection is the security of your resurrection. You will never die again and need to be re-resurrected a second time. That's what Jesus does. That's how powerful the God-man is. He kills death forever and will do so on that last day that begins all of our future days. And this leads us then to point number three, the question on our minds, what does it mean to have a resurrection body? What will they look like? What will we do with them? Where will they go? Now recall last time we've, we spent a whole time together looking at what are the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. What does that mean? You can go online and listen to that. But here point number three, Jesus' resurrection is the prototype of our resurrection. Here's a long passage. 35 all the way down to 53. Paul continues. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? <laughs> Look at what Paul says to us. You foolish person. It's very, isn't that a polite way to talk? Thank you, Paul. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, 
but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man, verse 47, was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So there's a lot there. But remember, our question at hand is this. What will our resurrection bodies be like? First, in the top part of this section, we heard Paul point to the continuity, the similarity, sameness of our future resurrection bodies to our current fallen bodies. And this is what he's doing with that long list of animals and birds and fish, sun, moon, and so on, and stars. Uh, just Genesis 1, God makes everything after its kind. And so he's making the same point here, the same argument. Namely, you remain you in Christ when you're resurrected. In other words, when we're resurrected, we remain human. But we now fully bear the image of Jesus, the last Adam, no longer the image of the first Adam, meaning no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering, and more. So what that means is when you're resurrected, you don't turn into something else, especially angels. There's a false belief, this cultural idea, really, that goes around that you die and become an angel. That's not true. Angels are a different species of creature created by Christ for different purposes. So we don't become angels you remain you in Christ. So on the one hand, there's continuity. 
what we see and experience with our physical selves and the way we look and more, there's a similarity, there's continuity to the new bodies that we'll get. But secondly, Paul also points to discontinuity or dissimilarity or difference of our resurrection bodies. And that's that weird analogy that he uses when he keeps referring to seeds. Uh, he kept using that word sow, right? Uh, you, you, to put a seed in the ground is to sow the seed. And so what he says in, uh, for example, in verse 38. In verse 38, he's talking about seeds and acorn. If you have an acorn, his analogy is the acorn does not become an oak tree until you bury the acorn. Right? It, it metaphorically dies, it's buried, and then when the acorn is planted, out of it comes an oak tree. Yet an acorn looks nothing like an oak tree. It's an unexpected surprise, and yet all the genetic material of the oak tree is in the acorn. So something mysterious is also going to happen in us, discontinuity, where what we become and what we will get in Christ as new glorified bodies will be wildly superior and better and glorious than what we are now. So we'll look like us, but not. This is how we should think of our resurrection bodies in glory. There is both sameness and difference, and every part of it exceeds our imagination. Look again at verse 42. So it says, after talking about the sowing seeds and sowing and rising, it says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. So our bodies are subject to entropy and decay. And so what we see here is that we go with fallen bodies into the grave and we're raised with limitless bodies out of the grave. Verse 43, it says, our bodies are sown in dishonor and raised in glory. And what's, what's beautiful here in this verse is this is, it's hinting at beauty. There, there's, there's a shining beauty that we have of, well, an ugliness of sin. There's beauty in this age, but there's an ugliness of sin, and we're raised in a shining beauty. It is sown in weakness. We're fallen. It's raised in glorious power, verse 44. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. Look at what that says in verse 44. It doesn't say we're raised a spirit spiritual body so go back to the first point about resurrection being the reunion of the physical or the material and immaterial self if there's a natural body there's also a spiritual body so all these contrasts in these verses perishable dishonor weakness natural versus imperishable glory power and spiritual these speak to the radical newness of our glorified bodies Again, what's it going to be like? Sadly, we have limited information about Jesus' resurrected body. What we do know is that he could be touched. We know that he walked around. We know that he ate food and then likely drank as well and probably was hungry because of that. And that's in his resurrected body, which points towards us walking around and eating and drinking and, and more in the new heavens and new earth. But that's the little that scripture gives. So, as we did last time together, we need to do a thought experiment. And we also need to think about Adam 
before the fall to help us understand Jesus' resurrected body and therefore our resurrected bodies in glory. You have to think about Adam from Genesis 1 and 2, not Adam from Genesis 3. Before the fall, when God made Adam and Eve, when God made Adam, Adam would have been perfect. Not glorified. There's a difference. It's a theological one. Perfect, but not glorified. We will be glorified. That means that all the things we're about to look at regarding Adam, we will have on an infinitely greater scale in glory, more than what Adam was. So let's think about this for a moment. Consider Adam's intellect before the fall. Adam would have been light years more brilliant, more intelligent, more wise, more knowledgeable, more discerning than the greatest minds since the fall. Adam's mind was unclouded and untainted by sin, by confusion and foolishness. Adam would have had great pleasure in the life of the mind, considering and investigating and growing in knowledge of God and his wondrous creation. How much more you in glory. When you are glorified, you will be more brilliant than the greatest minds combined to ever have lived in a fallen state. You will derive intellectual pleasure contemplating the glories of the gospel, who our triune God is, Jesus becoming man, truly God and truly man, living, dying, and rising on our behalf. How much more, as you investigate and see all the vistas and splendors of the new creation, that what you think will fill you with joy be inexpressible in wonder. And together, as we talk about God and his ways in his world, the joy it will give us. Or, not just intellect, consider Adam's emotions before the fall. And this is important, right? Because we've had a societal shift the last decades where when anybody says anything, they're going to say, well, I feel that da-da-da-da, right? People are making truth claims based on how they feel, and that's not good. And everyone wants to follow their hearts. Here's the problem. You see, consider our emotions after the fall. Human beings, we think sin is just rule-breaking. Yes, but it's more. Why do we break rules? Because it feels good. And we like it. Okay? Our emotions, the feels that we feel, they're tainted by bad desires, by sin, by misunderstanding. We get angry when we shouldn't, and we even get happy when we shouldn't. We either over or under feel things, we can even find sin, wickedness, and lust entertaining, funny, and pleasurable. And conversely, in this fallen age, we can find righteousness dull. And God not only repulsive, but repressive. We think God is a killjoy rather than the give joy that he is. And that's not God's problem, it's ours because we have disordered desires and feelings. So in our fallen state, our thoughts, our intentions, our feelings, our yearnings, our desires betray us, deceive us, and lead us astray. So my friends, don't follow your heart. Don't trust your feelings. Really, this side of, the, this side of glory, we shouldn't believe everything we think 
and certainly not believe everything that we feel. But Adam, before the fall, his emotions would have perfectly matched the circumstance. He would have felt all the feels perfectly and correctly. His desires and feelings were untainted by any bad desire. There was no misunderstanding for Adam. There was no sin. How much more us in glory? Because our feelings can glorify God. And when we're in glory, we will experience joy and pleasure and contentment and more to a degree to we can't even imagine. All of our feelings will be glorified. They will be untainted and unconfused by disordered feelings and emotions. You have Adam's intellect. You have Adam's emotions. What about Adam's physical self? Because we think about a new body that doesn't hurt. That's true. But you need to think about your mind and your feelings too. But now let's think about our physical selves before the fall. Or glorified Adam before the fall. Because of Adam's sin in the fall, we age. We deteriorate. We die. Cells mutate. Cancer forms. Virus and diseases ravage. Joints and ligaments deteriorate. Backs hunch. Metabolic disorders arise. Diabetes, heart disease, headaches, muscle wasting, eyes go blurry, bones break, tooths ache, hearing is lost, and on and on and on. All of those things, which we think are normal, are completely abnormal to God's very good creation in the beginning. Every single one of those things and more are results of the fall. So when we think of the brokenness of our physical selves, not Adam and not us in glory. When we are in glory, like Adam before the fall, but we're glorified, not only will there be no sickness, no deterioration, no malfunctioning of our bodies, your abilities will be glorified. Your cardiovascular system, your stamina, your strength, your flexibility, your power, your speed, coordination, agility, balance, and accuracy. The ways that we measure human prowess in this age. Your senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. Every physical aspect of our glorified bodies will be unfrustrated by sin, decay, and curse. You know, people like to get like a new car, new motorcycle, new bike, new shoes. We like to get things that help us to move around and live in the world. We, we enjoy expressing our physicality in this world because it's well, God made it to feel good. When we're on the new heavens and new earth, you will be able to express, as we go in and out of the new Jerusalem and live in this world and work and have our being, you'll be able to express um, life better than God intended in the garden in glory in new glorified bodies. It's going to be amazing beyond our wildest dreams. On this note, it's often asked, how old will we look on the new earth? I heard some of the older saints chuckle. There's an idea that kind of lingers. It's an uninvestigated idea that, okay, uh, whatever kind of age and state I'm in when I die, that's what I enter into glory in. I don't think so. Uh, Adam was made and formed, as was Eve, as uh, grown adults. 
but what we see in this fallen world, that physical deterioration sets in late 20s, early 30s. And from there, it's all downhill. So at the very least, I, I, this is pure speculation on my part. I think that there's going to be a youthfulness slash ancientness to the way that we look with respect. So, so um, there's going to be a youthfulness to us because we can take our cues from this age of what it's going to look like in the next. So it's going to be youthfulness. So we will have an, you, you are going to have an intellect greater than the greatest fallen minds. You're going to have physical prowess greater than the healthiest person and the best Olympic athlete. You're going to have perfectly ordered emotions. That is just a glimpse of the forever glorified bodies God will give us to enjoy him and his new creation to world without end. Couple other asides. I would also add that there's no biblical indication that she will not look like you. However glorification works, at the very least, we will recognize and know each other. And by the way, given that we're in glorified bodies, all the ways in this world that our sin leads us to all manner of body issues, especially perpetuated by the covers of magazines, TikTok, Instagram, go down the list, the cancer of comparison, the way people look, the standard of beauty issues and more image issues, all of those things, they will be gone. They'll be gone because we are new glorified bodies which glorify God and no cancer of comparison. And one more aside, it's important to tackle. We need to think about marriage at this point. So Jesus teaches in Matthew 22, verse 30, there is no marriage in the new heavens and new earth. When we get glorified bodies, there'll be no marriage. And I know that for many of us, that's a painful truth. And it doesn't make heaven sound very heavenly. But let me give you another truth to rest on to understand this. No part of this fallen world, no part of your life in this fallen age even the best it has to offer will be better or more desirable or missed when you're in glory. There's going to be no nostalgia on the new heavens and new earth. What's nostalgia? It's that horribly painful feeling when you look back in the past and yearn for a greater time that you wish you could go back to. Nostalgia is horrible. The time was good, but what it does to our hearts, there's no nostalgia in glory. Same with regret. There'll be no regret. In other words, when we are in the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, new glorified bodies, we will not miss any part. We will not long for any part of this world. Now this comes back to our relationships and marriage. A big piece of that truth, not missing this world, is that every part of us, when our beings are transformed and glorified, even our, relationship, our relationships are glorified, how we relate to each other. This means your relationship and fellowship with your spouse in glory, even though they won't be your spouse anymore, will be infinitely greater than it could ever be this side of glory, even on your best day 
or all of your best days put together. Do you hear that? Your relationship with your spouse, and however that works when you're unwed in glory, your relationship in glory will be better unwedded than it is now. And sum up all the nows that are so good and we, we love, it will still be better for one instant together when we're glorified. Verse 47 tells us, The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. As is the man of heaven, so also those of heaven. Just as if we have borne, carried the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Here's one more glimpse of what the man of heaven does for us. Revelation 21 verse 4 tells us that on that day when we, the great white throne judgment has passed, uh, hell has been thrown into the lake of fire, we've been ushered into glory, we're standing on the new earth, Revelation 21 verse 4 speaks of God doing this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Nostalgia is gone. Regret is gone. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When it says no pain anymore, it's not just physical pain, it's the emotional pain associated with regret and nostalgia. That's where I'm getting that idea from. So these words sum up so much of our hope in Christ there's one final brief point we need to tackle as we close out the sermon. Point number four, Jesus' resurrection is not just our assurance, not just our security, not just our prototype. Point number four, Jesus' resurrection is the victory of our resurrection. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 54. Paul concludes, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, the truth of Jesus' valiant resurrection as the first fruits of our sure resurrection and the glories of our glorified body lead Paul to taunt death. Death, you're going to die forever. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, Jesus, being Jesus, can bring light out of darkness. He brings life out of death, and Jesus brings glory out of fallenness. He brings imperishable out of perishable. And that's why we can all cry, given all that is said here in verse 57, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul hammers over and over in this passage that you should have the uttermost confidence in your resurrection and the glories that await you. And those glories that await us, our hope, fuel our life now. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new bodies, all shared together. What our triune God has in store for us together 
is beyond our wildest dreams. Jesus' death, his resurrection, not only secured our salvation, not only did it wash away our sins, but this taunt song right here of death means that when Jesus died and rose, he declawed the devil and he defanged death. Jesus' death and resurrection opened the door to future glory and these truths for you are unshakable, unextinguishable, unalterable reality for every blood-bought saint. Are you one of them? Are you one of us? This truth and these hopes don't create sleepy Christians. They create Christians who live on fire for Christ in this world, knowing that something infinitely better than what we have here is waiting for us there. And then when we precede each other there because of death or martyrdom, praise God, we'll be together forever. And we've barely glimpsed the many realities of our resurrected bodies, but there is one reality that exceeds them all. There is a reality better than the new heavens. There is a reality better than the new earth. There is a reality better than new glorified bodies. One reality that exceeds them all, and it's this. Our resurrected and glorified bodies, freed from sin, no sin, no sin, sin nature, the glorified bodies, God will give you unhindered capacity to know and enjoy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. The unrivaled reality of glory will be our ever-present and ever-increasing pleasure in worship and service of God. We will live, move, have our being. We will work. We will relate. We will go in and out of the new Jerusalem, so to speak, and more. And God's omnipresent presence will be our motivating and sustaining delight because of the gift of the new bodies that we're actually able to enjoy him and know him in ways that we simply cannot now. The gospel will be infinitely more glorious every day. God himself and who he is and the perfections of his person will motivate us and sustain us in sheer delight and joy. You can strip away all those other realities, but they are gifts the gospel gives. So we don't strip them away. But even if we did and only had a glorified body and Christ and Father and Spirit, our unhindered, undiminished access would be more than enough. The glory of glory will still be infinite glorious because of God himself in whom is the fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like the warmth and lighting and smell of a perfect spring morning, the presence of God will be all pervasive in the new creation. And his gift to us of glorified, resurrected bodies will enable us to enjoy him forever as he enjoys us forever, together, always. Amen? Lord, we want to enjoy you always together. 
And Lord, we thank you for your grace in this life that you know that we are weak. You know our struggles and frailty and wrestlings with sin. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the promise of your resurrection is the promise of our resurrection and that you have disarmed and defanged all that would take us from you. So Lord, let us now sing that death is swallowed up in victory. Let us sing your praises. Let us believe on you and cherish you, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen.